Revelation chapter 12. If I could pick one chapter in the entire Bible to explain the entire Bible, I would pick Revelation chapter 12. Because in it we have pretty much the whole story of salvation from the book of Genesis all the way through to the book of of Revelation. And because of that, I'm going to take my time and go through it rather thoroughly and slowly this evening. What we have in chapter 12 is the theme of this chapter is the the final conflict between Israel and Satan. After he is uh, cast out of heaven, we're going to find that there are seven performers that are introduced in chapters 12 and 13. So as we go through these, we're going to have some symbolism. Uh, Chapter 12 is actually a great example of symbolism, but then having that symbolism explained in the same chapter. We have the prominence of Israel brought before us here, and when the Lord talked about, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that's going to take out a greater meaning for you this evening as we get in to this chapter. I'm also going to spend a little bit more time in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, dealing with the prediction of the, the signs that are supposed to take place on September 23rd, this constellation. Uh, there's books out there. It's all over the Internet right now. So we'll take a little time and we'll address that issue. With that, let's dive in to chapter 12. Um, and remember, as we get into chapter 12, that the key to the, the book of Revelation is what? Who can tell me? Chapter what? Chapter 1, verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 9 gives us the key to the book. John is on the island of Patmos. The year is 96 A.D. The Lord appears to him and he says, John, I want you to write the things that are. That, and that would have been chapter 1, what he saw. The things that you've seen, that's chapter 1. Then write the things that are. That's the church age, chapters 2 and 3. And then he says, I want you to write the things that are after, and that's the key to the book of Revelation. We are in that section right now, after the period of time of the church, and as we get to um, chapter 12, we're getting ready to have the seventh trumpet blown, which will bring us to the um, last of the what we call the bold judgments. Um, it's also called the third woe. There's three woes in the book of Revelation. So, chapter 12, let's just look at the first two verses. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. I'm going to stop right there and... Um, Put something up on the screen. This is a statue of Mary. Um, This is at, I believe this is the one that's at the Vatican. What you have there is a picture of Mary. She has uh, 12 stars, as garland around her hair. And then she's standing on the moon. And Roman, in Roman Catholicism, 
Um, it is evident that our Lord, even though he sprang out of the line of the tribe of Judah, um, here, both mainline Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, when they read this verse, who is the woman, that's the question, uh, they'll tell you it's Mary, because Mary is the one that gave birth to the male child. Um, With that being said, I want you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 37, and we'll tell you who it really is. Genesis 37. 37 to 50 is all basically about Joseph. There are more chapters given to this one man than anybody anybody else rather than the Lord himself. There's 110 types of Joseph being a type of Jesus. And one of them is being despised by his brothers. Uh, The Bible says in John, John, not 1 John, Gospel of John 1, verse 11, that he came unto his own, and his own received him not. In other words, he was rejected by his own people. When you look, there's a reason why Joseph was despised. Um, The Lord would give him dreams. And let's pick it up in verse 5. The first dream that Joseph had here says, Now Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream that I have dreamed. He says, there were binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheave arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheave. And his brothers said to him, shall we indeed have you reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams, for his words. Well, this happened. Um, When they sold Joseph and he was raised up in Egypt, he became the second most powerful man in the world under Pharaoh. And when there was a famine in the land where his brothers were, they had to go to Egypt for food. Well, um, Joseph, I'm sure, dressed like an Egyptian. I wonder if he danced like an Egyptian too. But they didn't recognize him. And so they come in, and he accused them of being spies, and they bowed down to him. And I can't help but wonder if, if uh, Joseph didn't flash on this saying here. Well, that was just one of them. The next dream is in verse 9. Then he dreamed still another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Look, I dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him, and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come bow down before you on the earth? And... Um, this is really, um, this would be a good place to go to. I'm going to come back to it later, but as long as we're in Genesis, go back to the very first prophecy um, in Genesis 3, verse 15. And this plays very much into our study tonight, and I'll be coming back to it later. 
But we have, as a result of the fall of man, um, judgments against Adam, against Eve. But when it came to the serpent, verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. He says that I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. The he here is the first prophecy in the Bible concerning Jesus. Uh, he shall bruise, or the enemy I should say, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The he there, he there is Jesus, means he'll crush him, and uh, you shall bruise his heel as a reference to what he attempted to do in killing the Lord on Calvary. So here's the very first prophecy. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ and Lucifer. And um, let's go back to Revelation 12 and look at that first verse again. Who is the woman? Well, the Roman Catholic Church and most of Protestantism will tell you that it was the Virgin Mary that brought forth a male child. And even though that is true, we'll see by the time we get to verse 6 that that cannot be the case. Um, What we have in view here is the woman is the nation of Israel. And we find that out through this dream that Joseph dreamed. And Israel um, are the, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's a picture of verse 2. Then being with child, she cried out with labor and pain to give birth. How many of you are familiar um, with the rage on the internet right now of the prediction that chapter 12, 1 and 2 of Revelation is going to be fulfilled this September 23rd. Just give me a show of hands. This constellation in the the sky where it says there'll be signs in in the stars and in the heavens. How many here have heard it? Not as many as I thought. Uh, Mary wrote a track about it. And basically, they're predicting that this September 23rd is going to be the fulfillment of Revelation 12, 1 and 2. Uh, The reason we're only doing one chapter tonight is I want to address this. Um, And then afterwards, if you want to read the full track, uh, Mary has uh, a track called The Cat, the Fiddle, the Cow, and the Moon. That's a pretty good title for a track, don't you think? And you can pick it up in its entirety. Um, But she addresses this sort of sarcastically, and I appreciate that because... um, the people who are behind this, they'll make a lot of money out of, out of their books. And um, yet it is definitely a date-setting um, thing that really doesn't apply at all. So uh, I'm just going to read a page and a half, and it'll probably capture your attention enough for where you'll want to get the whole track. She talks of other predictions like the blood moons, um, occurring um, in 2016 with famous preachers like uh, Hagee and several others who have written books on the blood moons and so on and so forth. It didn't come to pass. It didn't happen. And the thing is, gang, every time something like this happens, 
And when this comes to September 23rd and nothing takes place, all it does is discredit people who are Christians. And they go, you're crazy Christians. You know, you're, you're, you're setting this thing. And, and um, so it's best to address it straightforward. So that's why we're only going to get through one chapter tonight. You with me? All right, I'm, I'm quoting this as, uh, from Mary's track. Um, she alludes to other people who have set dates, especially about the blood moons. And then she said, unfortunately, this brings me to the pop prediction of 2017. The supposed sign of September 23rd, just like the Lord forbids date setting, he forbids astrology. And we find both in this latest speculation. This particular pivotal date describes a moment when the sun will be in the constellation Virgo and the moon near Virgo's feet with a starry crown atop her head uh, brought to you by the planetary conjunction of Jupiter, Venus, Mars, and Mercury tucked in the constellation Leo. The verse given to substantiate this alleged significant alignment is Revelation 12, verses 1 and 2. And she quotes it, but we just read it. Now again, in the same manner of Hagee and Blitz previously, we have a non-lunar claim that an event in Revelation is about to happen, completely out of sync with the rest of the last day's events. If the claim is indeed that Revelation 12 is going to happen on September 23rd, then let's just go ahead and throw out the rest of the Bible prophecies because it no longer matters uh, what happens when the next couple, with the next couple of decades. She quotes um, a sidebar here, while there are no high-profile celebrities promoting this event at the time, I hope they've learned from the 2016. And while a Google search of the event suggests to me that many are not willing to state their conviction on this unequivocally, there are plenty of online videos that indicate that there are those who believe this will be a significant event. Others may come out of the woodwork as summer goes on, but regardless, my goal here is to make you aware of this and to encourage you to do your own homework. Now, getting back to the claims of the Virgo alignment. She quotes at this point um, a man named Dr. Danny Faulkner of Answers in Genesis. He has done some clear thinking, and it's no wonders his credentials indicate that he has every right to chime in on this issue. Dr. Faulkner earned his graduate degree in physics and astronomy, He taught at the University of South Carolina, Lancaster, for over 26 years. He is also a member of the Creation Research Society, editor of the Creation Research Society Quarterly. He has written more than 100 papers in various astronomy and astrophysics journals. Obviously, his credentials are well. They're stellar. And his assessment of the claims of this rare event is worth our consideration. Dr. Faulkner says, first, there is nothing particularly unusual about the sun appearing in the constellation Virgo. As we orbit the sun each year, the sun appears to move through the 12 constellations of the zodiac, spending about a month in each one, 
The month that the sun appears in Virgo is a time around the autumn equinox from mid-September through late October. Nor is it unusual to find the moon near the feet of Virgo. The moon takes 27 and one-third days to orbit the earth with respect to the stars. Therefore, a day or two each month, uh, the moon appears near the feet of Virgo. I keep mentioning the feet of Virgo. Although I am very familiar with Virgo, I have never been able to see a woman in the sky there, so I can hardly pick out what is supposed to be her feet, and I seriously doubt anyone else can either. Therefore, for a day or two, each September or October, the sun appears in Virgo with the moon at her feet, so this is not that remarkable. He goes on to explain that those who claim there are 12 stars in Virgo, they're mistaken. And um, they're still aware software people are using to uh, substantiate their September claims, even indicates that there are more than 12 in in Virgo. When I was a child, my mother couldn't keep up with uh, my request for connecting the dots. Now I've got to stop here. Does everybody remember when you were a kid getting a book with the picture and you had to connect all the dots? And when you got them all right, then you knew what you were looking at. All right, I just had to be sure on the same page here. So Mary's reverting back to her childhood. When I was a child, my mother couldn't keep up with my request for connecting the dot kids' workbooks. Uh, from the Red Owl, and even at six, I knew that the rule was to connect all the dots in the picture to get a true depiction and solve the puzzle. The same goes, I found out over half a century later, for prophetic studies. Dot connecting 101 (laughs) via the Red Owl trained me for the last days, it seems. God has a sense of humor, and I am proof of that daily. Now, Dr. Faulkner concludes that while, yes, the Bible says the stars are for signs in order for them to indicate fulfilled prophecy, they need to be visible to all to tell a clear story. These do not. If the sun is in Virgo, then the star will not be visible due to the brightness of the sun. How's that for a catch-22? You'll see Venus well enough, but not Mars or Mercury. That's not a sign, especially at 4 a.m. Now hot coffee appears on my bedside table without human hands at that hour. That's a sign of something I'm pretty sure. And in the same way that people oftentimes read into the scriptures what they want to say, they also read into prophecy and science what they want to say. People come up with something in their mind. And then they look for scriptures to back up to prove their point. And it's done all the time. And uh, I believe that was the case with the blood moons. And unfortunately, um, there's a lot of people that gravitate towards that for one reason. Unfortunately. But it's true. Not a good trend. And she closes with this. Besides, uh, sorry to state the obvious, but the Bible says, above all, watch therefore. Meaning at all times, not just in the fall of the year. The next time you're told by an author that some upcoming event uh, pretends anything, check your Bible. If it's not clearly prophesied there, be very careful in accepting it as a sign of the times. Sometimes the news is just the news. 
And sometimes the cat is playing with your mind or the church is fiddling around instead of watching for Jesus. And if you see a cow jumping over the moon, well, call me. That's just a nursery rhyme with about as much meaning as some of these speculations. If you want to get the whole thing and read the whole track, I encourage you to, because if you haven't heard about it, you're going to. Um, Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 is simply telling us one thing, that the woman that we're going to read about in this chapter is uh, nothing less than the nation of Israel, bringing forth the uh, male child. All right, let's pick it up, verse 3 and 4. The second prominent um, character in chapter 12 and 13, and then another sign appeared in heaven, Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. And he drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as he was born. So do we have. We have a woman, Israel eventually bringing forth a male child, Jesus, on the line of the tribe of Judah, son of David. And then we have here a fiery red dragon. Well, that's symbolism. That is symbolic. And so when critics of the Bible say you can't understand the book of Revelation because there's so much symbolism in it, I say just keep reading the whole chapter. And what's not explained in the chapter will be explained in this case in the book of Daniel. Just like when we were in Daniel on last Sunday morning, we made reference to, remember, we used the term a times, a times, and half a times. We found it both in Daniel and in the book of Revelation. They're connecting. And I'm going to be very repetitive on this so that you can see just how marvelous and awesome this book really is to Um, be so detailed and and so accurate. So, who do we have here? Well, let's go down to verse 9 for the interpretation, and we'll come back to it later. So that great dragon was cast out. What was the great dragon? That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So who is the fiery red dragon in 3 and 4? And uh, none other than Satan himself. He has seven heads and ten horns. Um, The seven heads suggest the perfection of wisdom, which characterized um, this creation of Satan, who was originally the covering cherub. Uh, he had the most prominent position uh, in heaven. Now, remember on Sunday, we went to Daniel chapter 10, and we pointed out that Daniel prayed and his prayer wasn't answered for three full weeks. And why? Because there was angel wars going on up in heaven. There was this angel called the, the angel of the prince of Persia who withstood the angel that was to deliver the message and it wasn't to a, until a stronger angel, Michael the archangel, showed up that he could deliver his message. So my point here is we're very 
painfully unaware of the spiritual war that goes on all the time in our life. He is the accuser of the brethren. He hates you. He has come to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his M.O., and he wants you taken out, period. And who he hates more than anything else is the Jewish people. And remember the prophecy that this, this war would go on between the woman's seed and Satan's seed. And it's the very first prophecy in the Bible against Jesus and the devil himself. Well, you know, Hollywood would have us believe, and he would have us believe, that he's somehow this hideous-looking creature, you know, the pitchfork and the red suit and the whole, the whole nine yards. That's the way the world depicts him. They don't depict him as the most beautiful creature that God ever made. That's what the Bible says. Perfect in beauty. I have to sit and just let that one set in. There's something that God created that's perfect in beauty. Well, who is that? The devil? It's completely, and the, has, the world has completely taken that and twisted that. Before I was coming out here, I was thinking about um, um, his cunningness. And um, I was thinking in particular that health care, before I left tonight, that was the main thing. Trump, this is what Trump said as I was walking out the door. He says, I got a big, big surprise. I think we can get this deal done, and I think we can do it before the 4th of July weekend. So why this is the number one issue in our country today, is, not, is it not? Is it not health care? And the nine Republicans that are needed to sign on, some think it's not enough, and some think it's too much. But the amount of money that is put into our health care system today, you know what it got me thinking of? Why health care? Why is that the number one thing that people are concerned about? I listened to a video this morning for about 45 minutes that basically tries to scare older people that they're not going to get their Medicare. And um, that's what they're talking about. And so what is it about our nature that causes us to get to that point where that becomes the main concern. And this is what I believe it is. I believe that um, when the Lord was challenged by Lucifer over Job, hey, have you considered my servant Job? There's nobody like him. He's a godly man. He gets up every morning, prays, seeks the Lord. And he says, yeah, let me at him. And he'll, we'll see if you'll praises you or not. He says, it's in your power. I'll let you do it. So in one day, he lost seven sons, three daughters, and um, all of his possessions. He was reduced to having all that happen, and it was in one day. It continued. Then this happened, and when the message of his children getting killed, he got the, another guy shows up on the scene, they just stole all your possessions and your camels, all in one day. What does Job do? He says, the Lord gives. The, the, the Lord takes away. Praise the Lord. Wow, could you do that? But the contest, you see, it was a test. So now we find the second meeting with the sons of God and the devil coming before the Lord again. And the Lord says, you lost your, your bet. He has not... And all this, he has not sinned against me. And Satan does one of these things. Yeah, well, 
Let me add his flesh. He says this, he says, skin for skin, there isn't anything a human being will do for his own life. And I thought, wow, that is insightful. Now apply that to what is a major topic in our government today, health care, especially Medicare. What about me? Am I going to have mine? Is my Social Security going to be there when I have it? What am I doing? I'm doing exactly what he said. I'm, I'm thinking about number one, and um, why is this the main topic? That's the insightfulness of the God of this world. Remember, he's the God of this world. He's the one that is movers and shakers and brings up the issue. And what is the number one issue? Health care. And that's where all the money is going. And he nailed it with one phrase, skin for skin. A man will do anything to save his own skin. All right, was that a sidetrack or what? (laughs) I opted out of Social Security in 1981 because I really didn't believe it was going to be around. First of all, I didn't think we'd be around, but that wasn't the issue. I really believed, by the way things were going, that you can't be, what is it up to, almost $20 trillion in debt, and um, today they're talking about Illinois going bankrupt along with um, Puerto Rico, both being in the same, same position financially. They just don't have the money. They don't know where to get it. And I better get back to my Bible study. <laughs> but um, I really do believe the Lord sh- showed me that and why that's such a big issue today. He understands our nature. <clears throat> All right. So the seven heads suggest wisdom and cunning and, the, and uh, the creation of Satan, who was the original covering cherub. It also says he was full of wisdom. And um, this reveals two of the fallacies that the world has concerning Satan. They think he's ugly, number one. He's not. And they completely underestimate his cunning and his shrewdness when it comes into being the God of this world. And by the way, the more serious you are about serving him, the more of a target you become. Who did he want um, of the disciples? Peter. Because Peter, you know, I like to say Peter wasn't afraid to get out of the boat. He wasn't, he wasn't afraid to take a step of faith. He was, he was willing to go for it. Yeah, he had foot and mouth disease, so to speak. But to his credit, he was really serious about serving the Lord. So who does the enemy put the target on? He says, Simon, come on over here. Um, Satan has asked for you so he can sift you like wheat. So you want to be more serious about the gospel? Well, better have your shield up. Better have your sword drawn because you become more of a target and uh, he would love, love to sift you as, in the same way. Anyway, that's the idea of the seven heads sug- suggests uh, his prominence in, in its own perverted way. The ten horns suggests the, fin- uh, the final division of the Roman Empire, which is dominated by Satan, and which in his final efforts to rule the, the world, the crowns are on the horns, not on the heads, since it is um, 
delegated power from Satan. The crowns represent kingly authority and rulership. And when it says the third of the stars of heaven, this is the one place where we actually have a number. The only place in the Bible uh, that tells us how many angels rebelled with Lucifer. A third of the stars of heaven indicates the vast extent of the rebellion in heaven when one-third of the angelic host followed Satan to their own destruction. And that blows my mind. Um, But that's, again, a dimension. And his subtlety and his craftiness to pull off deceiving even even, um, God's created angels. The dragon hates the man-child because it was predicted from the beginning that the child would be the undoing of Satan. Remember Genesis 3.15? He's going to crush your head, Satan. Oh yeah, you're going to bite him in the heel. Uh, He'll be bruised more than any man. He will die, but he will also rise again. So it's prophesied, the very first prophecy in the Bible is the undoing of the man-child. No wonder he wanted him killed. It says, as soon as the child um, was born, he was there to devour the child. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Oh, let's pick it up in verse 16. It says, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men. Remember the wise men come and um, they ask, where is the child to be born? And they came and said, in Bethlehem. And he said, great, when you find him, make sure you guys come back and tell me. They don't. They're told by an angel to go home another way. So when we read, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and he put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all of its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah lamenting, weeping with great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they were no more. So what does this tell us? Well, Revelation 12 tells us as soon as the child was born that the devil was there to destroy the child. So who is possessing Herod is a question. And the answer, the devil himself. You know, to, to kill innocent um, children at two and under, uh, we have a, fulf- a double prophecy fulfillment here, one that goes back to Jeremiah, prophesying this very event. And then if you go back to Revelation 12 and we read it, let's, let's just do a quick overview Uh, What we have so far is Israel bringing forth the Messiah. And we have also the spiritual warfare of the fiery red dragon. um, Bringing with him angels that were once angels are now demonic spirits. And some have free access. They can walk, they can come, and they can go. We're real close to the book of Jude. So, um, hey Jude, turn to the book of Jude right before the book of Revelation. 
verse 6. It tells us, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own habitation, he has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. So some of these uh, heavyweights were, are so um, horrifying that evidently the Lord will not release them until the great tribulation. And now we find that a third of them, some of them do have access. All right. In verse um, 5 and 6, And she bore a male child. Who? The woman, Israel. Yes, it was Mary, but um, she also was from the lineage who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. All right, here, I want you to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1, and let me draw your attention to verse 9. Uh, the first part of this is the Lord telling them to wait for the promise of the Father, He said, John truly baptized you with water. We had a great baptism. What a great blessing that was on Sunday for those you were there. It was just awesome. But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from here. Well, this is about 40 days after the resurrection. And he tells them that They will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them, and you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now verse 9. When he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who said to them, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus. Now the reason the word same is there is remember that Matthew 24, the the main sign that the Lord said, look out in the last days, there'll be many false Christs and many false prophets and they'll do signs and wonders, even deceiving the very elect. And so he mentions this this same Jesus that was taken up is going to be the same one who's going to come back, who was taken up from you into heaven. He'll come again in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Um, I can't resist. It's not my notes, but it's in my head. So let's go to Zechariah chapter. I've got to find it real quick. It won't take me too long. Chapter 14. We have a picture of the second coming. Let's pick it up in verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. We'll be bringing those verses up in just a bit. As he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. So the Old Testament predicts that when Jesus comes the second time, just like the angels told the disciples, this same Jesus we see being taken up, he's going to return again to the very same spot. Now we're going to be in Israel in November. 
And the hotel that we stay at has a view of the old city of Jerusalem on this side and a Mount of Olives on this side. And you can see it from your hotel room. And talk about a surreal experience when you know beyond any shadow of any doubt it's going to be somewhere in that mountain that the Lord is going to come back and he's going to put his foot right down. And when he does, the Mount of Olive will be split in two from the east to the west. Do you know that they're concerned about the um, tremors in Jerusalem right now? That was the news last week, the amount of tremors. And they're worried about this fault that runs through the Mount of Olives. They're talking about it, making, making news. And I thought, how interesting. Now, that's a sign. That's a, one of the things that, you know, that's a labor pain that makes you think twice. So let's go back to chapter 12. And read verse 5 again. And so the woman brought forth a male child, the Lord, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, in verse 6, we can prove that the woman is not the church, but it's Israel. You see, We find in chapter 5 that the church is in heaven. Out of every tribe, every tongue, and nation, they're singing a a new song. The first seal isn't open yet, and the church is already in heaven. Is everybody with me? Write that down in notes if you just want to check it out. So my point is this. There are people who get saved during the Great Tribulation. They're called Tribulation Saints. But they're not the church of today that are sitting here amongst us or watching us by live stream. The Lord has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. The wrath that I deserve, that you deserve, was poured out on Jesus at Calvary. Full measure, Father, why have you forsaken me? And um, so what we have here, what verse 6 tells us, that the woman, it can't be the church, because the church is already in heaven, fled into the wilderness where there was a place prepared by God that she should be Uh, fed there for 1,260 days. All right, let's turn to three different scriptures at this time. The first one is Matthew chapter 24, picking it up in verse 15. And we're going to read through verse 22. We've been reading this a lot, and it's one of the main themes of the book of Daniel and Revelation is this event called the abomination of desolation. So verse 15 says, Then when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whosoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let him who is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant. And to those nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Now, on a Sabbath day, there's only a certain amount of miles you're allowed to move. And more than that, it's considered work. He says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor will ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days would be shortened. So we turn here 
the abomination of desolation takes place. What does he tell them to do? Head for the hills. Don't go home for anything. Hope it's not wintertime. Hope you're not pregnant because you're going to be running for your life at this time. So before I go to the next one, I'm just going to read that verse again. Then the woman fled into a place that God prepared for them. Jesus tells us when that is. When they see the abomination, of, he's given them instructions. When this happens, this is what you do. Well, let's go to the Old Testament, and it gives us more detail, actually, where this place is. I'll have you turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 16, and we'll read verses 1 through 4. Ascend the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah to the wilderness. Now, Selah, uh, there's three different names for the same place. Selah, Basra, and Petra. It's in modern-day Jordan. I've been there several times. It's an unbelievable place, a fortress. Um, And then it said, For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of its nest, so shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcast. Now he's talking to the people in Jordan right now. And he's asking them to hide the ones that are on the run, the outcast. Do not betray him who's escaping. Let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab. Now, if you look at a, in, your, in your Bible, where you have pictures where it shows where Moab and Edom is, Moab is modern-day Jordan. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. This is one of many names of the serpent, Satan, um, the slander, father of lies, the list goes on and on, the different names that he has. But here he's called the spoiler. For the extortioner, extortioner is at an end, devastation ceases, the oppressors are consumed out of the land. Turn to Isaiah chapter 63. So the place that we have in, in reference here is the Lord is telling Moab, be a refuge for the outcast and keep them safe from the spoiler, the one who's going to be going after them. All right, chapters Isaiah 63, 1 through 4. Who is this who's coming from Edom, who's dried garments from Basra? Now Basra, again, Selah and Petra are one and the same. The one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red? And your garments like one who treads out the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments And I have stained all my robes. Why? For the day of my vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. It's a prophecy. It's a prophecy when the Lord comes to the battle of Armageddon. Go to Revelation chapter 19. Here is a picture of the second coming. Oh, pick it up. Well, 
We have to go back to verse 11. Chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written on that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now in my cross-reference here, it says Isaiah 63, verse 2. So what we're reading is a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah. And it says, The armies in heaven, clothed with fine linen, followed him on white horses. For out of his mouth was a sharp two-edged sword that he would strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself will tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Again, Isaiah 63, verses 3 for 6, word for word. And on his robe and on his side, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's go back to chapter 12. We made it through six verses. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) The rest will go a little bit more quickly. So the reason this is not the church, and when I put up on the screen Mary with the garland of 12 stars and standing upon the moon, saying that the woman in Revelation 12 is the Virgin Mary, no, the church is in heaven. It is Israel that is one that was told to flee, and those there are, it'll be the greatest revival in world history, and um, a third of them, a remnant, are going to make it. All right, verses 7 through 12. This is um, verse 6 has not yet happened. Um, so verse 6 is actually leaping ahead to verse 13. But in the meantime, we have what's going on in heaven. So in verse 7 it says, And war broke out in heaven. And here's Michael again. And again, please connect the dots. He, there was angel wars in Daniel chapter 10. Everybody with me and remember from Sunday? Angel wars in heaven? All right, well, this is the final one. And that tells me that they're still going on today. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Boy, would I like to see that. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So... The great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. Do you know that's his main thing that he does? Um, he's, he's always the one who's bringing the accusation against you or me. And I can sort of see him on one side, what he was doing with Job. Yeah, just let me at him. But where is the Lord Jesus Christ? My Bible says he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And every time that accusation comes up against you or me, The Lord stands up and he says, that's been taken care of. That old account, it's like that song, the old account's gone away. 
So that, um, as it says in Romans 8, verse 1, he will accuse you, he will condemn you. But what does Romans 8, 1 say? There is therefore no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. Now this is a good place for an amen, guys. (laughs) Because what happens? You get down on yourself for stupid stuff that you do and stupid things that I do and the stupid things that other people do and go and you call yourself a Christian. And he's just whispering that and he's just on his shoulder right here. But this is where it's so important to know your Bible. Because that's an emotional feeling that I have of being accused. But the word of God says there can be no condemnation if you're in Christ. You can say, yeah, what you accuse me of might be true. But my Bible says if I confess my sins, he's faithful, he's just to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. There's a better place to say it, amen. (laughs) Because that's the truth of the matter. And uh, this is why emotions can be so dangerous. And when the Lord says our heart is deceitfully wicked above some things, thank you very much for correcting me. Your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. What does that mean? Can't trust your feelings. You want me to break out into singing feelings for you? Please say no. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But that's our human nature. It gets back to this thing of my feelings versus what this book says. And this is where your faith comes in. Because when you take that and the fiery darts, that's what they're called, from the accuser of the brethren, what does he say? He accuses them day and night before our God. That's his main tactic. And you just put them in your place and say, yeah, but there's no condemnation. I'm, I'm in the Lord. And I have his righteousness. All right, let's finish it up. Therefore rejoice, O heaven, And you who dwell on them, well, he's not there. They're happy. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth and to the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. So there are two radical reactions to the casting out of Satan from heaven. There's rejoicing in heaven from this awesome, treacherous, dangerous, and deadly serpent forever. Then there is woe on the earth, and this is the third woe that extends through the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath. The only consolation for the earth is that Satan's sojourn on earth is a brief one, 42 months. And um, this will intensify, these last three and a half years, will be a gradual intensifying of the trumpet judgments, where it says a third of the sea, a third of the fresh water, a third of the grass. Well, in the bowl judgments, it's 100% of the fresh water, 100% of the sea, 100% of the bowl judgments being poured out. All right, let's wind this up with verses 13 through 7, 13 and 14 for now. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Who does the devil go after. And who is the woman again? Israel. So now verse 14, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a times. Well, that smacks of Daniel. And it's the same thing that the devil has a short time. How much time does he have? 
He has the last three and a half years of the tribulation. From the present of the serpent. So we find um, here is the last great wave of anti-Semitism that will, will roll over the world. And it's the worst because Satan is cast down to the earth and he knows that he has just a little bit of time. He hates Israel because Christ came from this nation according to the flesh. That's why one of the titles for the Great Tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble. Who's Jacob? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not a time of the church's trouble. It's a time of Jacob's trouble. And we we find... um, as we close this up tonight, 15 through 17. So the serpent spewed out water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up its, um, by the flood which the woman had spewed out of his mouth. Now, probably what we have in view here is um, it could be an army. Um, How it could be a a literal flood. Um, All I can say to that is I know that more than once the Lord parted the Red Sea, Israel was safe and the enemy was drowned. I can think of Korah in Jude, the rebellion of Korah. He goes, Moses, who in the world do you think you are? You think you're the only guy that God speaks to? And so he said, no, I want to be in charge too. And he got a bunch of people just like Lucifer did to to go with his side. And uh, Moses goes and falls on his face and says, Lord, Lord, what am I going to do? You know, these people want to go back to Egypt. They want Korah to be their new leader. Lord, help. And the Lord spoke to him, and he says, go talk to the people. He said, everybody who's on the Lord's side and me, you stand over here, and everybody who's with Korah and his side, you guys go go stand over there. And now, Lord, the ones that you want to get rid of, it's it's your turn to move. What happened? The earth opened up where Korah was standing, and everybody that was with him swallowed Korah and all the people who were with him then the earth shuts up again. So, is why is th- that significant? Because here we're reading it again. So when we read it again, we go, that's pretty heavy, but it doesn't sound very possible that the earth would open up. Well, it happened before. The Red Sea opened before. They went across on dry land. And then again, when they entered into the Promised Land, the Jordan River parted, and they went over on dry land on that too. So this happening here, is Satan's final attempt because the only playing card he has left is, remember Jesus said, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But what if there are no Jews and there's nobody that say, Lord, we repent, and they're gone. So why does he go after the woman? Because if he, if he can get rid of the Jews, there will be no calling out on the name of the Lord. But that doesn't happen. Praise the Lord. But the earth helped the woman. 
opened his mouth, swallowed up the flood, and the dragon which spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. He went to make war with the rest of her offspring, because they're still Jews and um, believers, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. I hate to end the study on such a, a somber note, but it's the way this chapter ends up. Um, but it's not the end of the story. So let's go to the book of Zechariah in closing one last time. Chapter 13. So there's a remnant. The Holocaust was terrible. Closer to 7 million we know now was gassed, shot, hung by a demon-possessed man named Hitler. He tried to exterminate an entire ethnic group. He could have been using his, his trains to take on Russia because they were at war with Russia now. Instead of sending his trains and armies to the Russian front, they were taking those trains and going to places like Auschwitz and Birkenau. And that was more of a priority to Hitler than it was winning the war in Russia. And what we have here in Zechariah chapter 13, picking up at verse 7, says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And then I will turn my hand against the little ones. In verse 8, and it will come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third will be left in it. Here's the thing that's hard to talk about. A remnant is saved, but we read in Revelation 12 as a third. What happened to the other two-thirds? Zechariah tells us. Two-thirds will um, be cut off, but one-third will be left. I will bring the one-third through the fire. They're the ones that are on the run. And these are the ones that successfully make it to Jordan, and they're supernaturally protected from the serpent. And I will refine them as silver is refined, and I will test them as gold is tested. What do they do? The last verse. They will call on my name... And I will answer them, I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. All right, let's see if we can end this on a more positive note. The Lord said to Israel, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They have to go through this terrible trial. But what does the trial do in testing them? It gets them to call out on the Lord. Now, I'm not going to raise for a, look for a, uh, hands to be raised here, but how many of you had to go through something pretty heavy in your life before you called out on the name of the Lord? And we think trials are such a bad, terrible thing that happened to us. No, it's all part of the refining process. Being refined just like gold is, is refined. So they're refined, and the final results of being refined as they say, Lord, Please come. And when he does, he, is, he comes immediately. I'm five minutes past my five-minute time, minute, minute past five minutes. 
And I want to go to more scriptures, and I can't, so let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, this is a lot to take in in in, uh, Revelation chapter 12. As we pretty much see a a complete outline from literally the very first prophecy in the Bible, Genesis 3.15. Through what Israel has to go through, the church being home in heaven, even the final three and a half years, Lord, we thank you so much of the glorious hope. And um, we thank you that you're going to save the remnant and that we will enter into that glorious kingdom age. Uh, But as we go our way this evening, Lord, we just um, uh, pray for Sunday morning as we look at it from Daniel's perspective of some of these same events. Lord, so bless those that are here tonight and those watching live stream. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.